How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. This spring, President Obama opened up new tracks of deep ocean waters to oil exploration and development. Just a few weeks later, the Deepwater Horizon oil rig plunged into the Gulf of Mexico on April 22nd, the 40th anniversary of Earth Day. On the same day, the U.S. Navy was testing a Green Hornet F-A-18 jet fighter powered by fuel made from Camelina, a hardy U.S.-grown plant that can thrive even in difficult soil. Navy Secretary Ray Mabus, former governor of Mississippi and former U.S. ambassador to Saudi Arabia, called the test a milestone in the development of biofuels. You know how times have changed when the Marines are celebrating a day founded by hippies. Uh, What will be the economic and environmental impact of oil gushing from the ocean floor in the Gulf of Mexico? Every president since Nixon has said America needs to reduce its dependence on petroleum, and we know that has not happened. Will the country finally get serious about conserving energy and investing in renewable transportation fuels? Here to discuss those issues and take questions from our live audience in San Francisco, we welcome four top experts from government, business, and advocacy circles. Kathy Reheis-Boyd is president of the Western States Petroleum Association. Dan Miller is director, managing director of the Rota Group, an investor in biofuels and former president of Ask Jeeves. Michael Brune is executive director of the Sierra Club and former executive director of Rainforest Action Network. And next to me is Jim Boyd, vice chair of the California Energy Commission, where he presides over Transportation and Fuels Committee and oversees climate change programs. Please welcome them to Climate One. Welcome, all of you. Uh, Kathy, let's begin with you. Uh, With regard to the Western states uh, being the uh, representative here for the petroleum industry, uh, we have a situation in the Gulf where there's three companies involved, and what, what is the scope of this? Does this uh, pertain to those three companies, or is this a broader industry-wide uh, problem or situation? I, I think it's a real game-changer. Um, the conversations that we're all hearing every day now on this very difficult situation, and, and I'd like to start by just saying our, our hearts and sympathy go to the 11 people that were killed as a result of this accident and everybody is doing everything they possibly can to try to stop this spill and make sure we can protect the environment. It is a very difficult situation. It will be with us for a very long time. But I do think it changes the conversation. I think um, from a long-term view, we have to look at how we can diversify our energy portfolio in a way that makes sense. And I hope today we can talk about what I call the real conversation, which is to look at the facts and figure out the right way that we can look to the future and move into a lower carbon economy, but do it in a way that we can sustain it. And there's a lot of details around that. But the incident itself is um, certainly doesn't impact current supplies because it was a discovery well. It was an exploration well. But it does, I think, symbolize the issue around energy security. We'll never be energy independent with the amount of imports that we have in this country and certainly in this state. But I do think it signifies a look to the future and how we can, again, diversify, look at other alternatives, but do it in a way that makes sense. Because there's one thing for sure is the American public expects 365, 24-7, affordable, reliable energy every day heat and cool their homes, turn their lights on, and drive from A to B. And so we need to figure out a way to do that, that we can sustain it and it's cost-effective. But it is an important issue. Um, You've heard many conversations in the last three weeks about all of the lessons to be learned. Safety first is very important in any exploration, certainly offshore, and that'll be the priority here is to figure out what went wrong, to fix it, and to apply it. Um, But I hope that the incident itself doesn't stop the real conversation, which is how are we going to sustain the growing energy demands of this nation and do it in a way that that makes sense for the environment. So you say it's a game changer. How is it going to change the game? Is it going to move exploration onshore? Is it going to – what's it going to do? 
I think what it's going to do is really look at every element of the situation that went wrong and improve upon it. Um, I think that will be in areas of technology. I think it'll be in areas of accountability. I think it'll be in areas of oversight. Um, actually, we applaud the president putting together an oversight committee to look into this issue and to find out exactly what went wrong. If there needs to be separation in duties with the Minerals Management Service, some of you have heard about that, that an agency that has oversight who does looking into royalty issues should not be the same agency that does inspections. Um, so that's probably something that we'll hear more about, and I'm sure there will be regulations that change that for all of us. Um, but I do think in California it's a different situation. Um, we certainly are not in 5,000 feet of water. We have di very different facilities here, very mature fields that have been producing for 40 years. They're fixed to the ocean floor. Um, they're 150 feet down instead of a mile, so they're easy to access if something did go wrong. Um, so I think we have a very good track record here in, in the state and a very good safety record. But I think we'll look at every aspect. Again, we'll look at the technology, the regulatory oversight, the spill response capability, um, you know, whether or not the technology needs to be advanced on both the prevention and the response side. So I think all those areas will be further explored. Uh, Michael Brune with the Sierra Club. Uh, Carl Pope was here at Climate One uh, just about this time last year, and he was with uh, Dave O'Reilly, CEO of Chevron, and he said at that time to, uh, to Mr. O'Reilly, you've done a phenomenal job of rapidly changing the technology that you use to drill for oil and gas and to find it. The problem is not the way we produce fossil fuels, it's the technology we use to burn fossil fuels. Do you think that's true? <laughs> well, uh, <clears throat> I think Carl uh, certainly was pointing out the, that there are significant problems associated with producing or, or uh, burning fossil fuels. And you know, over the last few years, perhaps we've grown a little bit complacent in looking at the, the costs of extracting oil, uh, whether the oil might be coming from the tar sands or whether it's coming from the Gulf or coming from uh, countries that we don't trust. What we do know now and what we're seeing painfully every day is that uh, the oil industry, for all its advancements in technology, is still a very dirty and a very dangerous and, sadly, a very deadly business. I was really ca uh, happy, Kathy, to hear you talk about how this is a game-changer and it, and it prompts a need to accelerate a conversation about diversifying our energy supply. It's good to start off on an area of, of agreement. And I think that the challenge for us is that this is not a new conversation. We've been talking about getting off oil since I was two years old. And the question is whether or not we can summon the leadership and the political will to actually make significant progress where in the past we've been stalled. So I think Carl, of course, has been a leader for years in calling for not only uh, addressing climate change in a more substantive and significant way, but also at addressing the, the limits of technology and trying to put in place a permanent ban on offshore oil drilling. I think that with those provisions in place, we can look towards real solutions to meet our energy demand in the future. Dan Miller, how do you think this is, this is a game changer? Well, I think there's potentially some positive and some negative consequences come out of this. So one is that I think we're getting a better understanding of what the uh, true cost of fossil fuels are. There's uh, some, we, we pay a certain price at the pump, but that doesn't include all the costs there, we're seeing that, uh, you know, there's, there's spills. And these spills are not, even though we, we're talking about it like this is a one-time thing that never happens again, it's, I, I consider it more like car crashes. Hopefully they don't happen to you, but we know that if we have millions of cars, we're gonna, there are going to be accidents, some people are going to be killed, we accept that risk. Well, I think this is a risk that we have to evaluate. There are going to be spills and other damage. But I also think it's interesting that if this spill didn't occur, we would have uh, taken all this oil and put it in our cars and burned it. It would have been in the atmosphere. It would have been invisible, but it still would have great environmental damage, uh, even if this spill didn't occur. So I think that if we recognize these costs, then we can, we can move closer to the other alternatives that are out there and not yet quite cost-effective. But if we stop subsidizing the fossil fuels and start subsidizing the renewables and, and the other alternatives, like electric vehicles and things like that, we can actually very rapidly move towards a better future, which, by the way, will keep the price of oil uh, fuel down and energy down, actually, because it's going to go up in, in a little while anyway. Uh, that's, that's the good news if we move towards the renewables. The bad news is if we start pumping more uh, oil from tar sands in Canada, an oil show, then we're in a lot of trouble. So, 
and, and both of those <laughs> might end up happening out of this, this spill. Jim Boyd, you've been in the energy business a, a very long time and in California. How, how do you think this is going to change the, change the conversation here, here in California in a way that, that uh, the Santa Barbara did in the 60s or, or other incidents? Well, it, it has already changed the dialogue because California was slipping into a point of maybe allowing some additional drilling off the coast of California, off existing platforms, slant drilling back in towards the land in the, into state property, um, so-called Trachean Ridge Project, which, believe it or not, the environmental community and the citizens of Santa Barbara were totally supportive of, and the governor was supportive of, but, of course, a few days after the incident, he withdrew his support for that project because I think we were all disappointed in in the human element here that apparently contributed to um, what's happened. I mean, we'll all have to wait to see exactly what caused it, but you know, fail, it's... It seems to be a little more human failure than failures of technology because the technology didn't seem to be adequately cared for. The The game changer that I hope it is, and, of course, it's more meaningful to California, but even we're not perfect. And we're, we probably have experimented with alternative transportation fuel more than any other state and the federal government for for the last 30-plus years. Air quality has been the big driver the 15 years I spent as the director of the Air Resources Board, that was the driver that pushed us into alternative fuels until until the oil industry said, we can burn gasoline, it burns as clean as that blankety-blank alcohol you're trying to force down <laughs> our throats. So that took care of alternative fuels for a while. Um, and energy de- security uh, just hasn't been that meaningful. Once in a while over the decades, OPEC would jerk our chain, the people would get um, excited over the high price of oil, politicians would get excited, but as soon as the oil price went down, we went back to business as usual. And why I'm concerned about it, whether or not this is a game changer is, you know, I had brown hair when the first president said uh, <laughs> that we are going to reduce our dependence on petroleum, and we were importing, you know, 30-something percent then, and now we're 60-something percent. So it, it really hasn't worked too well. Um, climate change in California and other places has been the big driver to get a reassessment of alternative fuels because of the carbon footprint aspect. And I would say 9-11, as tragic as it was, was the first time that a lot of people started talking about um, energy security. And the wars in the Middle East have reinforced that concern. And I just hope that this is a game changer, that the citizens of the United States, but particularly the citizens of California, will will uh, reinforce their politicians or enforce your will on the politicians to stand the ground on any of the all programs that force us to explore deeper and deeper into alternative fuels. The good news is we're seeing more of that, uh, and we even have the state of California as poorly funded as it is, spending money to incent new technology and fuels at the present time. Um, And uh, the administration in Washington is doing more of that now, so we kind of see light at the end of the tunnel. I just hope that the sad economic situation and the pressure it's putting on everybody doesn't convince people to back off of some of the programs that would bring us advancement. I mean, this, this is the golden state. Everything that this state ever did way out in front of everyone else made it, I think, what it is. There's too many people now who would just assume, why should we be different than any other state? Well, to me, it's because that's what made us different, and we need to keep it up. So I hope it is a game changer. Um, To me, um, the jury is out. I certainly, and I think my colleagues, will push it as hard as we can to incent greater use of alternatives. But our most optimistic projections show that we're going to be using petroleum for a long, long time. It would be nice if it were all domestically produced so we wouldn't be sending seven, $800 billion a year mm-hmm. to places that don't like us. Um, and I don't want to get into debate about oil sands of Canada, but you know, there are some scenarios that show that's better than sending it to China and getting air pollution back because of their unregulated use of Things, but that debate has to take place some other time. So, do you support the the, the ban of offshore drilling in California on the West Coast? There's, the West Coast senators have introduced a ban on uh, all new drilling off the West Coast. Uh, is that something that, that you support? Well, personally, I do. I didn't, 
much that much anymore because I was being lulled into a false sense of security that I'm a great believer in technology, the ever-accelerating pace of technological development. That's what brought us all the clean air uh, features that we have in the state. That's what's pushed some of our fuels. But um, you tend to forget about human error. You tend to have challengers, and now the gulf occur because humans make mistakes. And so it's got to be foolproof uh, and until it's proven. I, quite frankly, I thought the idea of slant drilling, which is the new technology that's bringing us more oil and all the shale gas that's suddenly been discovered, slant drilling back in towards the California coast uh, into state lands, which would generate some revenue. And if, you're, if you've studied the history of California like I have, you see the Tidelands Oil Fund created the higher education system that we have in California, created the plans for the state water project, created all kinds of beneficial things. Um, but the tidelands of the state are seemingly you know, running out of oil, and all the oil that's taken from federal lands does little or nothing for us. Let's get Kathy on this. Um, Kath, uh, Jim Boyd is vice chair of the California Energy Commission. Uh, Kathy Reheis Boyd, what's your position on a ban on offshore drilling in California? Your organization was very much in support of opening drilling. Is that still the case? Yes, it is, and, and I would like to respond one thing to Michael that uh, I do take issue with, which is that we, don't, we are not a dirty industry. Um, we have continued to make the cleanest burning gasoline on the planet in this state and have been through four reformulations on it, and so we're working very hard to try to deliver a, a clean product to the consumer. Um, I think what's, what's very important is to, again, consider the facts of California. We only... Pr- we only make 38% of our crude oil that we produce here, we use every drop of it. That's as much as we can make currently. We import at least 48% from foreign sources, and the rest comes from Alaska. There are no crude or product, or product pipelines that come into the state. So that's the fact. So it and comes out of the ground or it comes on a ship. So, yeah, yeah. so you have three choices here. You either produce what you have, you get it from foreign sources, or you diversify now, certainly, you conserve and you get energy efficiency and do all those things you can do. But the fact of the matter, until we can diversify into things that are at scale and are commercially available with the infrastructure, infrastructure to support them, we're still faced with that dilemma. In the United States, we will increase our demand 14% from 2008 um, to 2035. And when you look at those projections and you look at renewables and alternatives, um, back when they were 5.5%, and even in the best case of doubling them in 2035, they might be 11%. But in 2035, still 80% is going to come from coal, gas, and oil. And, but are your members actively investing in supporting renewables, or are they resisting the transition to renewables? I think our companies are becoming energy companies. I hope one day I can change the name of our association to be that. That'll be <laughs> well, one of my the, goals. The P, the P out of the, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's a very ambitious goal. But I do think that they are energy companies, and I think they're investing heavily. I think they can actually invest, if, if you look at the government figures, more than the federal government and any other private industry in wind, solar, algae, mm-hmm. all kinds of lithium battery technologies, hydrogen, um, because they, they know the future. I mean, we're all building this bridge to some low economy or low carbon economy, and whatever that mix is going to look like, we're all in it together, and they're, they're, they're going to invest there. But they also have to p- make sure that the consumer can still, in the meantime, again, you know, drive affordably. So, the, uh, speaking of driving, we had a gentleman here on this stage a few hours ago from General Motors uh, who's in charge of the electric Volt. I drove one today. It's very cool. It's fast. Uh, and he was said that we all know that petroleum's not the future, and this is coming from General Motors. Do you agree with that? I think petroleum will be in the future for a very long time, certainly all of our lifetimes and probably all of our kids' lifetimes. And then we'll see after then. I think the mix will change. I think, think the mix will absolutely change, but I think it will be with us for a long time. And so I think, again, if you're building this bridge, you have to look at what it's going to take you to get there. And we should keep making strides, making improvements, making things cleaner, diversify as fast as we can. Um, and then, you know, hopefully in the future we might meet some of the goals of AB32, which in 2050 is to reduce uh, our emissions 50%. So that's a pretty tall order, but I think we're certainly changing our fuels 
to meet the low carbon fuel standard that's in place now and was adopted January of this year. Kathy Reheis Boyd is president of the Western States Petroleum Association. Michael Bruin with the Sierra Club. Yeah, so um, a couple things. You know, we will be on oil. We will be using oil for as long as we allow ourselves to be using oil. Maybe we could just throw out some facts there. The United States currently uses about 20 million barrels of oil every day. We can get off oil as a country. We, we can get off oil as a country. If we electrify our transportation fleet, okay, this is just to promote one solution, not necessarily the only solution, but if we electrify our transportation fleet and chase out all of the SUVs and big trucks and gas-guzzling cars and all the vehicles that we drive in California and around the country, we'll save more than 9 million barrels every day when we complete that job. First, by promoting hybrids and plug-in hybrids like the, the car that we drove today, then fully electric vehicles. When we electrify the transportation fleet and we green the grid, we're reducing the amount of pollution that we're spewing into the atmosphere, into our air, polluting the amount of pollution in our water. We're increasing jobs and we're increasing energy security. If we convert the heavy-duty truck fleet, we save more than 3 million barrels per day. That's more than all the oil that we get from the entire Persian Gulf, or excuse me, the entire Gulf of Mexico, all the oil that we get off of the California coast, and all the oil that we get from Alaska combined. Three That'll million, take some time, three, though. Three right? million barrels of oil. Right. So what we do is we institute policies immediately, policies to electrify some of the smaller vehicles, like postal vehicles. We can implement the Natural Gas Act to, to convert a, a large section of, of the um, heavy-duty vehicles to natural gas. We can make immediate improvements to increase vehicle efficiency in this regard. And again, this will save three million barrels of oil every day, more than we get from all of our offshore oil drilling combined. What we can also do is we can electrify the, uh, um, we can electrify the rail system in the United States. That'll save half a million barrels of oil, which is about 25%. We get about 2 million barrels of oil offshore uh, every, every day. Uh, by electrifying transportation, we get 25% of that. By getting oil out of our use in home heating, Uh, and the tiny amount of oil that's still being used to produce electricity, we get another half million barrels of oil out. All of these things right now are technically feasible. It's obviously very difficult. It's obviously an an immense political lift and technological lift to actually change the cars that we drive and change the way in which our heavy-duty vehicles are powered. But the question is, will we rally together as a country? Will we take on one of the biggest challenges facing us from a foreign policy perspective, from an economic perspective, from an environmental perspective, and will we take this on, or will we talk about it for another couple decades? If we, are, if we are using oil for the rest of my lifetime and for my kids' lifetime, we are going to be in a world of trouble as a country. So we need to move now towards real solutions. One final point. Two final points. They're quick. Uh, we, we, can't, we can't use clean and gasoline in the same sentence without a negative in there. You know, it's, 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 just an, it's just an oxymoron. It's like saying that cigarettes are healthy, that Twinkies are good for you, clean and gasoline don't belong in the same sentence. And then finally, uh, you know, about the, the political positions of some of your member companies, it's ironic that you bring up AB32, Kathy, because three of your member companies are now funding the campaign to delay AB32. Three of your member companies are also resisting a bill that would introduce severance taxes in the state of California. The state of California is the only, the only state in the country that doesn't have a severance tax on oil companies. Explain what that is. Um, it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tax on the oil companies that could go towards funding our schools, towards funding our parks. There's a, a new bill that's being introduced called AB 656, which would institute a modest 12.5% half the rate that Alaska taxes its oil companies, a modest fee that would fund public education. If Sarah Palin can do it, (laughs) so can California. Michael Michael Brune is executive director of the Sierra Club. Kathy? Uh, On the oil severance tax, I think what's important to understand is in California, we have other taxes that other states do not have. And when you compare taxes on the industry here in California to the rest of the oil-producing states, California right now is right in the middle. So there's just as many states below and just as many states above us from a tax standpoint. What this particular tax does is it puts California number one in the nation as the most heavily taxed 
oil-producing state in the nation. And what that does is it just reduces our ability to produce domestically, and it increases the loss of jobs. And at a time when we are at 12.5% recession, it is not a good strategy, in my opinion, to be taxing the industry. It's very easy to pick on the oil industry. It's very easy to throw taxes at us. But I can tell you there was 300 people who went to the hearing that Michael referred to from all over the state, and there are people whose jobs depend on making sure they can continue to make a living during very, very tough times. And so this is not a time to throw an oil severance tax on, on this state and put this, this state as the number one tax in, in the nation. And on AB 32? The, uh, what, what Michael is referring to is the current initiative, and we as an association do not take positions on initiatives. Um, it is correct some of our members are involved, but it should also be known that the reason is because this is a pretty costly exercise. And I would say that there's not anyone in this room who wouldn't care at this point in time in this climate at 12.5, again, percent unemployment rate. This initiative says you wait till it gets back to 5.5%, which is what it was before it was passed. Now, you can argue about the numbers. You can argue about the concept. But I think the cost of the program are significant. I am not saying it is not meritorious to pursue it. Um, as I said, we're very involved in trying to reduce the carbon intensity of our fuels as, as required by law starting this year. But it is, um, it is something to consider at a time when people are finding it very difficult in some parts of the state to make their, their bills and even pay their mortgage payments. So I don't think it's a, it is a trivial matter. Dan Miller? Gee, there's a lot of things to cover there. Um, first of all, I agree that uh, you can't talk about, I mean, clean gasoline, it's, uh, there's still CO2 coming out of it, and uh, I think that's putting a tax on all our children, and uh, quite a high tax, and so I think that that's something that has to be addressed. I, I also agree that electrification is a great way to go. It's crazy to be uh, putting uh, gasoline into smaller cars. And in the meantime, uh, for the larger vehicles and airplanes especially, which are about 12%, I think, of the transportation oil use, um, there are companies, and I'll just, uh, one of our investments is in a company called Solazine, which is growing uh, fuel from algae and doing it quite successfully at scale today. People don't realize this. And they have publicly announced that they expect to be cost competitive with fossil fuels at today's price without subsidies in 18 months. Now, they won't be making it at high volume yet. They still have to build the big plants, but they'll, the algae will be productive enough to, to generate fuel. And this is, uh, they can turn it into what's called renewable diesel. Now, renewable diesel is chemically equivalent to the diesel that's in the pump, in the green handle pump. So you might ask, well, doesn't it have CO2? Well, the answer is yes. It has exactly the same amount of CO2 that a regular barrel of diesel does because it is a regular barrel of diesel. The difference is it was made a couple of months ago and all that CO2 came out of the atmosphere a couple of months ago, where in fossil fuels, it all came out of the atmosphere, also made by algae, by the way, uh, about 100 million years ago. And so now what we're doing is we're digging it up as fast as we can from underground and throwing up all this old CO2 into the atmosphere. And I think if you take a look at where we are even today, I mean, the level of CO2 in the atmosphere today, not where it's going, is higher than it's been in 15 or 20 million years. And predictions for the temperature at the end of this century is just mind-boggling. So to talk about, I mean, I, I would certainly take a 12.5 cent tax uh, in order to uh, relieve the tax on the future generations and uh, to, to also, but, but even forgetting about that, I'm in venture capital. This is the biggest economic opportunity ever. And California is going to do extremely well because of companies like Solazyme and LS9 and Amaris and I, I can't even count how many uh, renewable energy companies there are in, even in the Bay Area, this is going to spur our economy, going to make the Internet look like a tea party. And that was a fun tea party, by the way. Um, so by putting the true price on fossil fuels, we'll be able to um, spur innovation, economic growth, jobs. It's great. Now, we, we shouldn't be sending all that money overseas. That's, that's crazy. We should keep it in this country. And, and, and it's, it's all really doable today. It's not ready to replace all the oil today. But if we put the right rules and regulations to spur the innovation, it could happen much faster. And we hear about 2035. I mean, I'm worried about 2015. And we can actually, in 2015, it could look so much different than it looks today. Look at the, I mean, look at the Internet, right? It didn't exist. 
<laughs> that long ago, and now we can't live without it. Things can happen quickly if we put the proper rules in place. And this one is too important just to let the status quo go. And I would, just as a one follow-up to what Dan is saying, the, the technology of algae is extremely promising. It's one of the areas that our companies are very heavily invested in. And the reason is, is because it can be turned into something that can go right into the refineries right. and using the existing infrastructure of the state and directly into the vehicles. So you don't, it is a, is a great, it's a great technology for, for being able to utilize immediately without having to change out um, retail and, and even the vehicles. So not to say that you, you don't want to diversify and electrify and all of that as well, but I think it's just a very promising technology. Can I make a quick comment about this diversification? Um, I, I don't disagree with any of the ideas that we need to make significant rapid changes. Um, I just, based on my experience, it was on my watch we did the zero emission vehicle uh, regulations in California, the electric car mandate, as the auto industry called it. On the promise of battery technology advances that would meet our needs, they don't exist yet today. And that was um, a problem. The big promise of today is the plug-in hybrid electric vehicle, smaller battery load, you can plug it in, you take care of the range anxiety that people have. And the Volt, to me, and, and I, General Motors was, was my worst enemy in the auto industry, but I actually called them up and congratulated them a few years ago when they introduced the Volt because it's what you call a series hybrid uh, vehicle, which means it doesn't need a big internal combustion engine to add power to the wheels. It's got a tiny engine that is a generator, and there's electricity to the wheels at all times. That really takes care of the average family's range anxiety and what have you. But electricity can't solve all the problems, and I agree we need to introduce as a, as a bridging fuel to the future more natural gas where appropriate medium and heavy-duty vehicles seem to be the right area. But we also need to make more synthetic fuels from various sources. It's not just electricity. I would love to go 100% electricity. I'm in the electricity business. Um, we are struggling to, 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 to faithfully meet our renewable portfolio standard commitments because it is so hard to build infrastructure and to do all that's needed. And unfortunately, a lot of us are responsible for not wanting anything in our backyard. I don't want to see a power plant. I don't want to see a transmission line, et cetera, et cetera. So we'll get electricity as fast as we can, but we need other fuels. And I would like to see us make more biofuels by using our waste stream in California, all the garbage you throw away, all that stuff sitting in a forest that's fuel to burn down the forest, all the agricultural field crops we can't burn anymore, uh, the food processing waste, all the stuff going to landfills that are being too rapidly filled, but the landfill people know they're in the business of making money by putting stuff in the ground. So there's just so many opportunities that we're not capitalizing on, and a lot of it is due to to statutory hurdles that have been put in the way of doing this. So it's, it's a very complex issue. We need a diversified portfolio of fuels, and we can't rely 100% on the dream of some that it's hydrogen electricity and forget everything else. Hydrogen is the electricity issue of the future. I think we'll get there, but it, I can't see it over the horizon for quite some time. So a diversified source of fuels from many different sources. Jim Boyd is vice chair of the California Energy Commission. We're discussing offshore drilling and energy at the Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Jim, I'd like to pick up on one thing you said, which is the battery technology doesn't exist today. Uh, could part of that be because California took its eye off the ball policy-wise? It did away with the zero emissions mandate, and then as soon as they did that, all the electric cars went away, and the, and the auto companies started stopped working on it. So one of the problems is we have these zigs and zags uh, where the, we make rules and we change them, and that doesn't give industry a clear direction or signal. The, is this is a difficult question for me because I left the Air Resources Board in 1996 before they changed everything, but they were beginning to talk about change. And I had philosophical differences of opinion. I'd been the director for 15 years. I decided it was time to move on. Um, but I will say during the time I was there, and we did have the, the mandate, battery technology was disappointing us. I mean, it, it wasn't, it is a more difficult thing than a lot of people thought. Battery technology has come a long, long way today, but it's still expensive. Um, and so that's why I became a huge fan of the plug-in hybrid concept. And state agencies are not supposed to pick winners. And I'm very much prescribed that idea. But 
Three years ago, I convinced the Energy Commission to invest $3 million at the University of California at Davis in a plug-in hyperelectric vehicle center, which, and, and against advice from my air quality friends and everybody in the auto industry, and yet look what is the rage today, the plug-in hybrid concept, um, and we're starting to see some pure electrics. So, yes, I mean, it's, it's going to happen. It's just going to take longer than we thought. Michael, and, yes, I was very disappointed when they changed the rules. Uh, Michael Bruhn, you wrote in your book that biofuels can only make a small dent in, in fuel consumption. So do you think that, that biofuels can, can scale and, and uh, be, be a big part of the, pro- of the solution? Well, I think that they could be a part of the solution. I think it's important for us to, you know, to, to set some, some ground rules. Some of the biofuels that have already come out, which we commonly rely on right now, are either uh, d- helping to destroy forests in Southeast Asia to mm-hmm. produce palm oil, uh, helping to create dead zones in the Gulf and increasing greenhouse gas emissions when we produce ethanol. Uh, so when we look at investments in second, third, fourth generation biofuels, what we need to be focusing on are uh, a set of fuels that don't destroy priceless ecosystems that don't cause an increase in greenhouse gas emissions, that don't use an excess of water that we can't sustain, and, of course, can, uh, can meet a significant portion of our needs. It seems as though the, the, the group here does agree on a, the basic concept that we, uh, we need to diversify our energy supply. So I'd, I'd like to offer two points for a framework to do that. One is we need to set a goal and then manage towards those goals. This is, these are conversations we've had at the Sierra Club this morning, literally, about how we need to set clear, uh, ambitious goals to help get America off oil and then find out what's the, what's the best way to reach those goals. And this is what we could do as a country. We should, we should adopt a framework to evaluate all of our energy options, whether it's biofuels or electrification, what have you, according to what is the safest, what is the cleanest, what is the cheapest? And what is the quickest? What can come, on, come online more quickly? Clearly, when you think about offshore oil drilling, it doesn't work on nearly any of those questions. But when we start to think about algae, when we start to think about biofuels, when we certainly look at electrifying uh, our rail or our passenger fleet, you begin to, to come into contact with a much more attractive set of options. Kathy, what do you think about that? I actually don't. I, I actually agree with that kind of a philosophy. I think we've all looked for a comprehensive energy plan for a long time, and I don't think we have one in this nation or the state. So, um, I don't even take question with the criteria that that Michael has identified. I would add um, um, to make sure that it is um, at scale. I think one of the things that is very difficult it, when we talk about these alternatives is to make sure that they can be at scale and commercially available and delivered to market with the existing infrastructure. So part of that analysis would be, if we really want to design a program to get there, set the goals, is to seriously look at the barriers and figure out how we deal with the barriers and break them down, but to identify them. And there are many of them. So I'm not, and I I think we can. I think we're all up for the challenge, but I think we just need to be realistic and say, okay, for this to happen in this time frame, here's what we're going to have to do. Is it possible that some of your members are going to be faster and more nimble and, and embrace this change, and some of them are going to, are going to resist it? And like every one of us. Yeah. <laughs> and is, but then In our do, daily lives, for many, many reasons. But then do you have to sort of, like a lot of associations, be held to the lowest common denominator that, that they can agree on and that, that the slow guys are holding the fast guys back? Um, I think an example of our commitment is, you know, we're working very hard with the Air Resources Board every day on what's known as the Low Carbon Fuel Standard, and this is probably the most aggressive program in the entire nation. Um, No one else has one. Oregon is considering it. Washington is as well. It hasn't really surfaced as much on the national debate because it's all been about cap-and-trade programs and, and those sorts of things. Um, But this is a very aggressive standard. It basically says we have to take our gasoline and diesel, and reduce its carbon intensity 10% by 2020. And that's, it, that's difficult to do today because there is nothing to blend in our fuel today that will do that. Corn-based ethanol, when evaluated by the Air Resources Board, doesn't do it. It actually is, it gives you the same number as gasoline and diesel does when you add ethanol from the Midwest into our product. And so you have to look around and say, well, what does? And right now, the only thing that's available is Brazilian sugarcane, and that 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 we that is readily available and at any scale that we could get a benefit to blend into our fuels. 
The regulation also says that if we cannot meet our obligations with our fuels, we're still obligated to meet this 10%. And the only other way to do that is through buying credits from, say, utilities who who are making electricity investments into moving to an electricity-driven transportation system. So some of our members may have to do that. If we can't, if we don't have the ability to transform our fuels, then we're going to have to look at other alternatives because the regulation is law. It isn't, it, you know, putting the initiative aside, it was passed. And so it's in effect, and we're, we're trying to implement it. I think one of the things we are doing that's similar to what Michael outlined is um, we have been successful with the Air Resources Board to put together a group of folks in July from the environmental community, the autos, the utilities, us, to do what we call as a periodic review, and that is to, to look at the regulation and ask ourselves, do we think we can meet these volumes by this deadline, and if not, why? Um, and look at the marketplace. There's lots of criteria that we will be doing the same analysis that Michael talked about on a, on a national basis, just for transportation fuels. But I think that's the continued conversation, and not a conversation that's going to delay for years and years and years, because we're really in the regulation. So I think it's important that we do that, and we invite a broad-based group of people to come together and, and really try to identify. Kathy Rehice Boyd is president of the Western States Petroleum Association. We're discussing energy and climate change at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, would like now to invite you to line up over in this corner over here, where we will uh, start to take uh, audience questions. After one more question, Dan, did you want to get in on this? Yeah, there's a few uh, things. Uh, scale. I, I, I spoke to folks at Solzheim, asked them what they thought they could do. And in the future, they, and it's not just this one company, but the, the biofuels companies uh, altogether, they feel that they can be producing tens of billions of gallons of fuel in the not-too-distant future, that they can handle 50% or more of the diesel, not the gasoline. The, gas, the, the guys who run this company believe everyone should drive an electric car, by the way, and these are biofuel companies, so keep that in mind. Um, that the, the diesel and the jet fuel requirements. Uh, they're already making fuel at scale, not on a continuous basis, but this is something that actually can, can meet our needs. And getting back to the issue of uh, there's good, there are good and there are bad biofuels, it all relates to land use. So if you're, you're growing it in corn and someone else is cutting down a rainforest to grow more corn, that's a really bad thing. If you're using prairie grass out in the land where you're not even watering it and you're cutting it, that's a good thing. And the trick to all of that, by the way, the holy grail of biofuels is something called cellulosic uh, biofuels. You might have heard of cellulosic ethanol. And that just means taking the leftover parts of plants, putting enzymes in it, and getting the sugars out so you can make biofuels. But it's also possible to make cellulosic diesel. And actually, at Solzheim, they've already made it, and they've driven cars on it already. So it's a real thing, and that's using the waste products of plants. And if you do it carefully, then you can actually make quite a bit but we still have to be more efficient. Only 1% of the energy in a gallon of gas goes to move you in your car. So there's a lot that can be done to, to electrify cars, make them more efficient in general, make planes more efficient. That combined with all of these things, we can move quite quickly. And at the same time, rather than worrying about increasing the price of gas a little bit, we're going to hit peak oil soon, if not already. The price is going to go up if we don't do all these things. And if we do move forward on this, we're going to really spur the economy, and, and things will be great. If we don't, we're going to be dealing with climate change, and we're going to be quite sorry when we had a chance to do something we didn't. Let's move to audience questions. Yes, sir. Yes, my name is Chris Peoples, and in my personal life, I've been car-free for 11 years. But I also serve on the uh, board of a local transit agency that has about 603 buses, 600 of them diesel, three of them fuel cells and about to be 12 of them fuel cells. Electric drive vehicles, but the energy carrier is hydrogen rather than a battery. And the gentleman from the Energy Commission has talked about it a little bit, but I'd be interested to hear what the other folks think about that. Fuel cells. Dan? Fuel cells are not... Uh, hydrogen is not a fuel. You don't dig it out of the ground. You make it using electricity, <laughs> or you split it off from natural gas. And so it really is an energy storage technology like a battery. And, and if you can make it cheap enough and it works well as an as a energy storage medium, it's great. But it doesn't, in a sense, re, replace solar or wind or, or, or fuel, fuels that you, that you um, get the primary energy from. 
Kathy, some of your members have pulled back from hydrogen, I believe. Yeah, but we still have quite a bit of investment. We have members who are involved in the fuel cell partnership, and so it is a promising technology, and I, think it's, I don't think it's going to be the only technology. I don't think there's going to be a silver bullet. It'll just be part of the mix. Promising, and it, it, maybe it always will be. Um, <laughs> yeah, next question. Kimberly Schroeder, I majored in sustainable development at Cornell University. Hey. And I, yay, and I was also <laughs> I was in Copenhagen in December as part oh. of the International Youth Climate Movement. So very much invested in this. I care very personally about this. And two sort of specific questions. One, one, one quick one. Okay. Um, well, natural gas and biofuels. Um, natural gas, doesn't it also depend on where it comes from? Like if it comes from methane, that, you know, from a landfill or from cows versus, you know, also fossil fuels. And then biofuels, even with cellulosic, isn't it still maybe not actually it still releases CO2. It's a net negative CO2 because of the extra refining processes. I'm talking about David. You have to look at the, you have to look at the, the, the whole life cycle. Right. And with, with Solozyme, as the one example I know, they did an independent study by the same group that actually works for California and does the life cycle analysis, and they said that the process would result in 85 to 93% reduction in CO2. You're right. It's actually totally neutral based on the CO2 out of the air and up into the air, but there's processing... Uh, tractors and stuff. And eventually they'll all run on biofuels. Maybe we can get that even better. Let me speak to natural gas and biomethane real quick. I mean, we all call it natural gas. It is methane. It just comes out of the ground. It is a fossil fuel. It's the cleanest of the three fossil fuels. Um, And that's why California's electricity system has been on natural gas for a long, long time. It's the cleanest. Um, Biomethane is methane produced from things like manure, or digesting or other processes of many of these waste materials that turns it into biogas that's cleaned up to become methane. And, I mean, I think there's a huge future there. Uh, At the present time, we give incentives to utilities to sign contracts for biomethane if they'll promise to use it in their power plants. So biomethane is a a very positive step in the right direction. Michael Broon. Sure. Just one quick point on natural gas. It, it, as Jim was saying, it is, is the cleanest, relatively speaking, of, of other uh, fossil fuels. And we can increase the standards uh, for drilling and for transportation to, to make it even cleaner. There's, there's a lot that the natural gas industry can and must do, and there's a lot that state and federal regulators can and must do to make sure that in the production of natural gas, we're not creating a, another series of problems with our water supply or, or air quality at the same time. It's so nice to hear Michael say fossil energy and clean in the same sentence. (laughs) Cleanest. Cleanest, not clean. Uh, We're discussing fuels and uh, energy at Climate One. Next question. Good evening. Thank you. Uh, My name is Michael. I'm an educator with the Alliance for Climate Education. Uh, Dan, I apologize for not calling your last name, but I want to thank you as a young person uh, for being the only person on the panel to acknowledge the climate debt that the generation at hand and at power right now is going to leave to my generation as young people. So thank you seriously for acknowledging that. Uh, my question is for Mr. Broom. Um, first of all, I was very excited to learn that you were moving from the Rainforest Action Network to the Sierra Club because of the track record for the Rainforest Action Network for holding corporations accountable, specifically with the things that they were doing that were unsustainable, unethical, and definitely behind closed doors. So what's doors. your question? So my question is, um, <laughs> will you continue that track record as the, as the ED for Sierra Club, specifically with natural gas? Uh, my home state is New York. I know there are people there that are fighting against natural gas extraction and the, hydro- and the hydrofracking of the shales. Uh, companies like Halliburton and not so only Michael, the Mars- are you going to take up the shale, but Michigan as well. Thank so, thank you. Sure. Well, Greg, if you if you could not interrupt people when they're saying nice things about me, that would be good. Um, <laughs> but quickly, yes, of course. You know, this, the Sierra Club has been working actually with Rainforest Action Network uh, on one corporate campaign, which is to give, convince Wall Street to start to redirect their investments. Uh, away from the problem and towards the solution. We're working with J.P. Morgan Chase, for example, to stop, excuse me, to stop investing in mountaintop removal. And I would imagine that over time you'll see the Sierra Club doing more campaigns to inspire and to help or even push uh, corporate America to, to be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. And on natural gas, uh, we're, we are right now looking at different options where we can, again, at the same time, to, to push the industry to embrace its responsibility to make sure that their fuels aren't degrading water quality or air quality. So, quick quick yes. comment. The amount of natural gas that's estimated to be out there in shale gas, in my opinion, is way overstated because people are not taking into account the environmental consequences. And there's a lot of that gas I don't think we'll ever get to. So it can be overrated. 
Next question. Rachel Doty, another Cornell graduate. All right. Um, you brought your own fan club today. I think yeah. Michael, yeah. Love you. Any Berkeley um, people? <laughs> everybody's mentioned greening the grid. Uh, Sierra Club is fighting right now a lot of power, coal-fired power plant uh, building. Uh, methane is a very powerful uh, greenhouse gas, so there are downsides to using that. Uh, some of the alternative energy supplies we've mentioned have the storage issues, um, so the battery technology is a problem there. When you're talking about converting all these things to being electrically powered, what exactly is the source of all of that energy? Are you considering nuclear power, or, or what, what is the reasonable solution in the near term? I'm going to let Michael answer that one. Okay, sure. I'd be happy to. So, yes. Uh, so, what was your name? What is your name? Rachel Doty. Rachel, thank you. So, yes, the Sierra Club has been uh, one of the top priority campaigns for us over the last several years has been to stop the coal rush and stop the construction of new coal-fired power plants. Uh, together with grassroots allies around the country, we've stopped uh, the construction of about 128 new coal plants in just the last several years alone. And so now we are evolving that work and taking it to a bigger scale to focus on existing coal plants and working on a plant-by-plant, city-by-city, state-by-state basis to retired, old, and outdated coal plants and to replace them with a set of clean energy solutions. And so the, the loading order for us, the, the order of priority, and this is probably something that Jim has worked on a great deal, is to, first to maximize efficiency. Dan talked about this, and we have to make great gains at every level, uh, individual, regional, state, federal, at maximizing the gains in efficiency. And we're not doing that at, at any of those levels. So efficiency comes first. Uh, second comes uh, smaller-scale renewable distributed energy resources, small-scale wind, small-scale solar, because it can, it can allow for a diversified energy grid. It has the smallest economic f- or environmental footprint at the same time. After that comes large-scale wind and solar. Uh, and then after that, again, we would be, uh, to the extent where it's needed, we would be promoting natural gas as, as a bridge fuel so that where we don't need... Uh, where, where efficiency, solar, wind, some geothermal, you know, some wave energy isn't enough that we would still be able to keep the lights on, keep our iPhones charged, and yet decrease greenhouse gas emissions in a significant way. But your question on nuclear, uh, we think that the, the four tests I was talking about before, cleanest, safest, cheapest, quickest, nuclear power, new nuclear plants ranks dead bottom, dead last on all four. So we don't support... We don't think it's a smart economic investment, certainly not a good environmental investment to produce new nuclear power plants. In terms of shutting existing facilities down, we're starting with coal plants. Oh, well, I, would, I, I, think, I think coal plants would be dead last, not nuclear plants. That, well, that's you know, and, and nuclear doesn't give off <coughs> CO2, and that's a lot more dangerous than any possible radiation leaks. And things well, like being that, a so. state liaison with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission for the past eight and a half years, I'm not <laughs> real keen on nuclear. Not because... Well, for some of the reasons stated, nobody really gets the economics right. Just look at the plants in the world that are costing twice as much and taking twice as long to build. But we, as a species, have not figured out what to do with the waste appropriately, and I just don't think it's wise to build more, to create more, when you don't know what to do with the waste safely. Jim Boyd is vice chair of the California Energy Commission. We're also discussing uh, climate change and energy at Climate One with Kathy Reheis Boyd, president of the Western States Petroleum Association, Michael Brune, executive director of the Sierra Club, and Dan Miller, managing director of the Rota Group. Kathy, can I, did you can I just add one? Also, you know, with the cars, I'm sorry, electric cars today off the existing grid, even the, the dirty grid, it's still, it's still cleaner than burning fossil fuels in, in your car. So, so we should green it. But, but electric cars are still a good thing for today, and there's a lot of benefits and, uh, that come along with that. Kathy, do you want to jump in quickly? To just on, on natural gas, question. I mean, of course, I love natural gas. We produce it in here in California. Um, unfortunately, we only are able to produce 15% of Californians' needs. So um, all of that, of course, uh, as Commissioner Boyd mentioned, goes through, uh, through the power plants. So the rest of it is, is, is piped in from, from elsewhere. So... We'll continue to try to produce as much natural gas as we can find and are able to do. As the state will let you, yeah. Um, sir, Hi. next question. Hi, my name is Jack Markowitz. Very interesting program. But I'm wondering, if we were to ban offshore oil drilling in the U.S., 
would we not be sacrificing all the cheap offshore oil drilling to the North Sea, to China, to Brazil, all these other countries there, they're going to add drilling. And we, we uh, uh, you know, restrain ourselves. It seems to me we're giving up on the cheap energy and letting the other guys get it. Just a couple of other things, perhaps. Let's leave it right there. That's a okay. very good question. It's a global commodity. Uh, if we don't do it, someone else will. Kathy? Well, I mean, in the climate change discussion, it's very prevalent because especially when you deal with even, as uh, Dan brought up, the oil sand issue in in Canada, um, the United States gets 20% of its crude oil from Canada. It's the largest importer of of crude to the United States. And so in the short term, again, until we can diversify, the question is, you know, what happens if the United States doesn't take that energy source? I guarantee you Canada, that uh, China and India will. And they will burn it, and it'll produce climate change, and it'll, and it'll probably be in areas that are not as environmentally sensitive as this nation is. And so in that context, all you've done in the short term is produce more climate change emissions, and, you haven't, and all you've done is reduce your own energy security for your own nation. And so it's, it's a conversation that I think has to happen in that context. And again, it's that transition. It's between where we are now and where we want to go, and how do we make that happen? We've got 10 minutes left, so quickly, Michael, and then Dan, and we'll get back to the questions. Sure. Well, Jack, thanks for your question. You know, I, I think I would say that uh, that oil is not cheap, as we're finding out every day. Uh, the, the, the price of oil is not what we see at the pump, and we pay for it with our lives. We pay for it with the quality of our air and our water. So oil is not cheap. It never has been. Uh, you However, your, your point is a fair one, which is that if the United States ends offshore oil drilling, won't other countries jump in? Uh, and what we, well, this, is a, this is a global problem, and it deserves a global solution. And so in the United States, we do have a leadership opportunity to get the world off oil. As we develop better solutions, uh, we're not going to see India and China and other countries continuing to stick with a fossil fuel-dependent past because the solutions will become more economical and thus more attractive. I do have to say one thing, which is just that uh, we, have, we have choices that we have to make no matter what about our energy infrastructure. We will be making more than a trillion dollars of investments in our energy infrastructure in the coming decade, regardless of whether it's fossil fuels, clean energy, or not. If we, if we look 30, 40, 50 years ahead... You know, if I look 50 years ahead from now, I'll be in my late 80s, maybe just ending my tenure as executive director of Sierra Club, <laughs> living off my children somehow. Um, what will we be glad that we did? Will we be glad as a society that we chased down every single bucket of oil from the tar sands, from sensitive places, from countries that we don't trust? Or will we rejoice and will we celebrate that we actually once and for all buttoned down, sharpened our pencils, rolled up our sleeves, and figured out a solution to get off oil here in the United States and globally. And this is a leadership opportunity for those who are heading big corporations or who have titles in public office, but it's a leadership opportunity for all of us. And as citizens of California and around the country, we have to inspire our leaders to take action once and for all, and I hope that we do so. Dan, quickly. Well, I just have to... Second, that and you know, there's something called conventional wisdom. I think we're all suffering from conventional ignorance. The problem is so far worse than most people realize right now where we're headed. That if we don't show leadership now, if we don't make these changes, if we don't stop subsidizing fossil fuels and start subsidizing the clean stuff, figuring out what the clean stuff is, research should be increased dramatically in this area. And if we do, then we actually have a chance in the future. And by the way, it's not a sure thing if we do make all these changes. But to wait another 10 years, then, then that's it. There won't be any choices. One left. of the tools we use to make the kinds of evaluations that have been talked about here, particularly Michael, is, is AB32. So you, it, it has forced government and industry to look at cradle to grave for the first time ever. It's forced all government agencies to come together and compare all the various aspects. It's the greatest systems analysis tool we've ever had, and you will slowly get all the answers to what are the best routes to take and not take. And so that's why I think it's silly 
to, to do away with something that is a tool. You, you can debate the climate change issue, but it's sure forcing the kinds of analyses we've always needed. And I need to thank Michael for mentioning efficiency, because it is job one in California. We just can't control our efficiency destiny with automobiles. We have to rely on Washington, D.C., and they finally did something. Next Kathy, question. Kathy, hold on just quickly. If, if you agree with Jim that AB 32 is an effective tool, will you work with the Sierra Club to convince your members to stop fighting it? That would be an, uh, a very – that would take all of my time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm willing to volunteer. A worthwhile uh, use, maybe. <laughs> again, on AB 32, like, we can – you know, we're, we're worried about jobs. We should worry about jobs, worry about the economy, worry about the price of fuel. Moving forward into the future with these new technologies, we'll solve all those things. If we don't, the price of fuel is going to double, you know, if we don't do anything. If we do something, then we'll have these alternatives that can keep the price down. But waiting another 10 years is, is just not going to help. Next question. Yes, ma'am. My name is Pat Colburn, and I want to thank Jim for a perfect segue. Uh, although the conversation has been about uh, automobiles, there is otherwise another revolution beginning in California in the way we use our resources. Um, energy efficiency retrofitting of our existing residential housing stock will produce not only huge savings in energy and greenhouse gases, but is the best path we have to galvanize our construction industry and, by extension, our entire economy. Our homes in California, 14 million plus, emit more greenhouse gases and more energy than our cars. The most affordable energy is the energy that's not used. Energy efficiency retrofitting, otherwise known as home performance, will not only reduce energy use and the attendant greenhouse gas emissions through draft ceiling, duct ceiling, insulation in the attics, walls, and crawl space, and combustion safety testing, our homes will be healthier, more comfortable, and more durable. Okay, that's, I, I think we, we get the, you know, so homes, retrofitting, efficiency. It's, it, I, Thank you. The lady's right. I mean, well, but I've got to expand and suggest in the future she reference buildings as well as homes because actually target number one in California for us is our buildings now. Homes, yes, and we have just moved hundreds of millions of dollars of federal economic stimulus money out the door and, uh, into this arena of helping people retrofit homes so on and so forth, which is going to employ people. But buildings are the thing that really are the biggest sink in terms of being wasters of energy. And that's probably our highest priority at the present time in terms of this efficiency movement. But it, as, as stated earlier, efficiency with regard to, to electricity and natural gas is something California can control its own destiny. It's never been able to do that with automobiles. In 2003, I was saying we need 40 miles a gallon instantly, Finally, Congress has moved on that. But um, efficiency is, is the cheapest way to go. But as Michael said, then you, go to, then you go to renewables. We just batch them all together, renewables big or small, distributed generation, ultimately to the cleanest forms of, of uh, generation using fossil fuel, which is natural gas in a combined cycle system. And by the way, we have a policy in California. We don't want our utilities importing any electricity from out of state unless it's generated as clean as a combined cycle natural gas plant, which means slowly over time when their coal contracts expire, they're going to be precluded from renewing them. Next question. Hi, my name is Rose Brads, and I'm with the Center for Biological Diversity. And I would like to believe that what's happening, like the silver lining of what's happening in the Gulf is that it is a game changer, but I am concerned that just week, week or so after that, um, we saw a Senate climate proposal introduced that you know, incentivizes all this dirty, <laughs> dirty fossil fuels, uh, offshore oil, um, nuclear, and doesn't um, incentivize renewables that we're talking about here today, guts portions of the Clean Air Act that has been proven, you know, as a successful tool for reducing pollutants and, and is starting to be used just now to um, reduce greenhouse gas pollutants. And so I wanted to get um, your feedback on on what you think about what's happening in federal climate legislation and, and what is the bottom line for good federal climate legislation that can really be a game changer. Michael? Sure. Well, Rose, thanks for your question. Thanks for your work. The Center for Biological Diversity has done great work for so long. Uh, we, we were also disappointed with a lot of elements in the, in the climate bill that was introduced about a week or so ago. We think that it, it represents 
uh, highly effective lobbying work done by the nuclear industry, uh, oil and gas industries, and um, and others. And and the the fact that we're we would continue to subsidize and accelerate the rate at which we're developing those energy sources is for us a reflection of the fact that right now uh, the fossil fuel lobby, the nuclear power lobby may have more power in Congress than we do. And so what we're doing at the Sierra Club is we're doing several things at the same time. We're working with a number of different groups, small community groups, national organizations, faith organizations, to build a movement to advocate for more jobs, less pollution, greater energy security, and a, a climate bill that we can be excited about. Uh, we, are, we are continuing to work on Capitol Hill, meeting with members of Congress to uh, craft a better package of energy solutions that uh, would accelerate the development of clean energy, make deeper investments in energy efficiency, and eliminate the giveaways to industries that we don't think will carry us towards a sustainable energy future. And, of course, you know, we'll be working ongoing uh, on a variety of strategies because we don't think that climate change will be solved with one bill. It's a highly complex problem, so we need to have a diversified strategy. So, again, a big part of our work will continue to shut down existing coal-fired power plants, continue to advocate for efficiency measures at the local and state and regional levels, uh, working to stop the development in the tar sands. There's a lot of things that we can be doing as, as citizens, but also as organizations to uh, address climate change in addition to focusing on one particular bill. My fellow Californians, one of the worst crimes in, the, in all the debates in, in uh, Washington, and there are many lobbying groups, is they, it's the lowest common denominator. They want to eliminate all of California's um, rights to, to do all that it has done in the past. They want to l- l- exempt, well, take away all our exemptions and just make us live with a 50-state program. So no more automobile program. Senator Levin's still protecting Detroit. Um, and, you know, no AB32 type. It's, it's going to lower the playing field to, to the lowest common denominator. And, you know, that's wrong as far as I, a Californian, believe. Let's, uh, we're out of time. Let's get one quick last question. We'll wrap it up, sir. All right. My name is Jeremy Wayne. I'm studying public administration and sustainable management here in the city. And prior to that, I worked in chemical research and development on battery technology, cellulosic feedstocks, a variety of things. Um, I think when the key earlier, the advancement in battery technology was compared, say, to the advancement of biofuels. And I think a key difference is that the materials that are used for batteries are either precious metals or rare earth metals that are very costly and very difficult to get. They require a heat-beat-and-treat approach to preparing these materials into the technology that will perform, whereas with, with uh, algae, it's a natural process that we're simply exploiting. There is none of that high temperature, high pressure mm-hmm. setup that is necessary, and I think that's a key difference in the rate at which the technology can develop and be implemented. But, but as a venture capitalist, I'm seeing uh, you know, interesting technologies come our way in the battery world, using nanomaterials, for example, to reduce the... In- Internal resistance of batteries is a really interesting step, and a whole bunch of processes where sort of everyone's working on a little tiny thing, and when they come together, it actually could end up, uh, you know, coming up with breakthroughs that maybe wouldn't use as much of the precious metals, which are, which is a big problem. But I think there's a, a lot's happening there. A lot of money is going into that, and it's a little hard to predict. But I, I'm actually optimistic that you know, five years from now, for example, there'll be a pretty a reasonable cost uh, high capacity batteries. One last question. Uh, Kathy uh, Rush Limbaugh yesterday said that the Sierra Club is to blame for the offshore oil spill <laughs> uh, because they pushed off drilling from land uh, to shore. Do you think there's any merit in that, last aside, that the environmental movement pushed no. drilling offside? No, I don't. Michael? There we go. Do I? No, but I do think, <laughs> I do think Rush is uh, good for a laugh, and we appreciate his sense of humor. <laughs> and on that, we will end it. Uh, thanks to Jim Boyd, vice chair of the California Energy Commission, Kathy Reheis Boyd, president of the Western States Petroleum Association, Michael Brune, executive director of the Sierra Club, and Dan Miller, managing director of the Rota Group. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you for coming to Climate One. <laughs>